politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and minimen to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today for November 30th. We are rapidly approaching the end of the year, and we are rapidly approaching that time when we're going to cross the point of no return when we can't get our freedom back. Every day is a good day to fight for freedom, but now is the time. You know, Tocqueville once said, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. And that's, that's the confusion. A lot of people don't know how to even use their freedom. We're inundated with so much false information, lies, monopolies from our government. People are so confused, so they don't even know what to do with their freedom. That's what we're here for every day to give you some guidance about what is actually going on. On all the issues, most recently we focused a lot on the virus simply because they created a bioweapon to kill us and then created another bioweapon to so-called treat the um, first bioweapon, but it doesn't do anything other than kill us and injure us, all the while blocking out what would help. And that's what we need to focus on. Where we need to fight with the governor, state legislatures, primaries, to inoculate ourselves from this tyranny, this biomedical state, how to properly solve the problem created by the very people impelling us, impelling upon us these so-called solutions, and how to break away, how to break away from this. It's very important to get understand what is going on. There's this false choice that I think a lot of people have been bought into that somehow the virus is natural. So either it's a problem and the COVID fascists are right, or it's not a problem and they're wrong. And inevitably, because it is a virulent virus and it's gotten more virulent because of the vaccine, and we're going to be talking about that more today. So people get mugged by reality. They have a family member that had a rough go of it, even died from it. And they're like, oh, man, they're right. This is bad. We do need lockdowns, masks, and clot shots that don't work. In reality, no. It makes the point even more. They created a deadly virus. So all the more so, you shouldn't listen to them and should follow what actually does make sense. So we're going to get into all of that today. We're going to give you a basic sense of where we are epidemiologically Um, Based on the best research, uh, I'm coming across speaking to a lot of people that are in the know, and as always, information you're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, We had a terrific show yesterday for our 1,000th anniversary. Today is number 1,001, but we're going to stop numbering it. It's just going to be labeled on iTunes by date, so make sure you subscribe uh, on uh, iTunes or wherever you hear uh, the show. We had uh, Governor Ron DeSantis on, and, and you listen to him, and fun, it's funny because he did the show in the morning, and then he did a couple of press conferences, and he was just on fire. He called out anti-white animus by name. Um, no other major Republican politician has done that. Uh, he's just been on message on everything, and you're thinking like, oh my gosh, the gap between him and a run-of-the-mill Republican is greater than the gap between a run-of-the-mill Republican and a Democrat, much greater. Imagine if every Republican governor was like that. We would have a different country. 
not not only the red states would be red, but it would serve as such a check and balance, such a deterrent against what the feds and the blue states are doing. Uh, I don't even think it would be as bad there. This is what we need to strive for, how to make every other governor as good as he is. And you know what? Then he himself will be even better because the synergistic effect of having so many more patriots together, it's a lot easier when you're not out on a limb. Now, our sponsor today, one of the only rights you still have left is the Second Amendment. It's become very expensive to go to the range. Ammo is a fortune. What if I told you in the privacy of your home, you could practice 90% of your skills, uh, proper draw, um, sight alignment, picture alignment, uh, trigger manipulation, proper grip, proper stance, and you would make back your money after just one training session from not going to the range and expending ammo. iTarget Pro makes a propriety uh, laser bullet that fits in any pistol caliber as well as rifle caliber so you you know if you need to do three you put that in there when you go to itargetpro.com and you download their app they give you a board you shine your phone on it and it renders your shots exactly where they would go uh times your draw uh if you you know get the updated version of the app and really it is terrific you will really keep your skills up to date you don't have the noise of the of the gun you don't have the expense. Um, doesn't mean you should never go to the range, but really this is a way to cost-effective way of, of practicing. It also makes a great gift for Christmas. If you know of a family member or friend that's really into this, you go to itargetpro.com um, and then put an offer code CR to get 10% off plus free shipping. Really good deal, itargetpro.com, offer code CR. So I want to start today... <laughs> With this stupid um, Omicron business, this this variant they're talking about, let me ask you this. Let me ask you a question. Why in the world would you focus on a variant that hasn't really proliferated that much yet? All the signs point to the fact that, if anything, it's milder than the existing variant and of course everyone so far who has tested positive for this variant ironically is vaccinated or not ironically if you understand the vaccine when we literally have the current iteration of delta which is the vaccine mediated enhanced version of it that's killing so many people in america and europe I mean, this thing is really bad. I can't tell you how many younger people are having their blood oxygen level drop. And again, vaccinated, unvaccinated. You know, Dan Bongino announced on the show he got the shot. His doctor advised it. Um, he had 103 fevers. Blood oxygen level dropped. This thing doesn't work. But, you know, he's in his 40s. Now, I know some people will say, well, you know, Dan, um, you know, he, he did just go through last year some chemotherapy. I get it. But, you know, it's not like he's a 90-year-old on his deathbed. He had a bout of lymphoma that is very treatable. It was pretty quick. Most people survive it. If you can't, if the shot doesn't even work for people like that, then that's a heck of a lot of people. Reality is, even without that status, there's plenty of men in their 40s, vaccinated or not, that are having their blood oxygen level drop. This has become noticeably worse 
since July, right around the six-month marker when the vaccines began to leak. And that is a known phenomenon. Why aren't we more concerned about that, that the shots aren't already working for the variant that is much worse and is killing people? And really, that variant itself, as we're going to talk about, wasn't destined to do this. Naturally, I'm not saying the vaccine created Delta, to be very clear. I'm saying you would have naturally likely had it, probably. But it made, that was the iteration that it broke out with. So there's two things. One thing, it selects for the most durable one. And number two, it enhances it. Why aren't they concerned about that? Okay, isn't that a good question? I'm saying if you want to panic people, so now one thing is very simple. Well, you know, by now they've kind of, you know, expended their panic over Delta and people are, are used to it. So you always need something new to rejuvenate the fear. And that is legitimate. But there is something more sinister afoot. As you well know, we've done a presentation on this before that they clearly knew about uh, spike protein, ACE2 binding coronaviruses because they were creating it and they warned it was going to happen because they were creating both the virus and the vaccine. There's a disturbing pattern that is reemerging. When you suddenly hear about this random obsession with something that doesn't seem natural to obsess about, it makes you wonder. I don't have an, a full answer to this question, but I'm just here to give you the information that I'm seeing. In Bloomberg, Bloomberg News pointed out in, um, on, in August, okay? This was in August. August 17th, they had an article when COVID-19 fourth wave will hit South Africa. Okay, this is four, four months, over four months ago. Three months, over three months ago. And they said it should be the, around December 2nd and last for about 75 days, according to Salim Abdul Karim. Salim Abdul Karim, he is the former chairman of the government's ministerial advisory committee on COVID in South Africa. He was so sure about that. And again, in September 13th, in um, Business Tech, there was an article, Will There Be a Fourth Wave in South Africa? That was the title. South Africa expects a fourth wave of COVID infections to hit in early December, which will last for as many as 75 days. How did they know about that? That's really creepy. That's really creepy. And then Salam Abdul Karim, who is who is this guy? You go to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and he is on their scientific advisory board. Very interesting. So he seemed to be in the know. I don't know what is or isn't going on, but when you start hearing this stuff and you have that history behind it, you do have to wonder... Did they create this variant? Just like they created the virus. Because Moderna's now out there saying, we're going to have an Omicron booster. Well, it's kind of weird. Why didn't you do, I mean, Delta has killed more people than, than anything. And it failed for that. Why wouldn't you push 
Why, why didn't they try to create a booster for that? Instead of just what they're doing now, which is the same dose of the, you know, thing that was designed for the ancestral strain. Well, likely because Delta was natural. That was a natural mutation. Now, the enhancement of it wasn't natural. It was because of the vaccine. But because of that, it didn't work and they lost control over it and they couldn't do anything for it. But this, they're going to make a big deal out of this. To now sell this because part of the problem they have now with the boosters is, you know, they're like, oh, just like a flu shot. But then there's the obvious question. Well, a flu shot, you reorient it towards this year's strain. How do you give the same as, as the past? So there's increasing pressure on them to produce something that's, that allegedly speaks to the variant at hand. So they, this is my only theory. It's just a theory. I don't know, but I'm just putting it all together. Why they would obsess over a more random benign one than the one that's. That's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. But that's the reality. I mean, this, this is the one that's killing people, and they're not focused on it. So they're going to develop another booster just for this. Just remember, this Omicron thing has been around in South Africa. They identified this for months already, and they were talking about another wave. And there's no evidence that it's growing hospitalizations at all. And in fact, the doctor who was involved in discovering it, as many of you probably heard, she made it very clear that this really wasn't much of a problem. So there's that. I mean, this is this is very just just a you know very simple observation. But it is interesting that it seems to be exclusively in vaccinated people. And you wonder if they if they they were prepared for this. And this is their variant that they can make a big deal over and say, oh, we have something that fits like a glove just for this. Whether it does or doesn't, I don't know, but that's the way they're going to market it. Whereas with, with this, prima facie, it's failing. See, they're rapidly reaching a breaking point where they cannot, they can no longer lie. I mean, we, we've gone through the statistics all over the place, but in all these European countries, I mean, Newsweek even has an article out, the top five states, vaccinated states, so it's all the New England states except for New Hampshire, which I think still has a pretty high rate, but not as high as, as Vermont and, and Maine and, and uh, the others. They have the highest, the sharpest increase in cases. Again, they have no way of explaining that. So they have to distract to this random thing because the reality is that the variant that really matters, that's really killing people, not only did it fail, but it actually enhanced it. And there's no way they're ever going to get a vaccine that works for it. So they have to distract. Because again, if you're trying to follow panic porn properly, I'll tell you I'm concerned about the current iteration. Not this Omicron thing. The current one is a big problem. If you don't get this treated, I mean, a lot of people are going to die. Including even younger people. We're seeing this all the time. So I have a tremendous story I want to share with you. But our next uh, sponsor, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when there's nowhere to turn? If we don't succeed in creating more Ron DeSantis's throughout the country, one place you might want to check out is Panama. If you go to buypanamanow.com slash conservative, you could check out their free American's Guide to Living and Retiring in Panama 
look, a lot of people are looking there. You could live on just 24000 a year. You could live like a king for just 120000 with a beachfront condo. Um, it's the number one world's uh, wealth protection haven. Your health care could be as little as 2600 a year, no income tax. There's a lot to look at there. So uh, there's a lot of people retiring there. Again, go to buypanamanow.com slash conservative. That's buynow.com, buypanamanow.com slash conservative and claim your free series on investing in Panama's Pacific Riviera today. So let's look at this Delta variant, the one that we have currently, the one that is relevant. Trial site news has a very interesting article Insurm-based researchers, data models suggest ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement, a possibility with COVID-19 Delta variant and current vaccines. Okay, this is pretty heavy-duty. A trio of researchers affiliated with the prominent National Research Center of France, Insurm, as well as Marseille University, suggests the possible risks for antibody-dependent enhancement in association with mass COVID-19 vaccination schemes since the onset of the Delta variant. ADE represents a safety concern associated with vaccination strategies. Previous research investigated ADE with SARS-CoV-2, focusing on the wild type of original strain called the Wuhan D614G. However, as the Delta variant now represents the majority of strains, the study team investigated the interaction of infection-enhancing antibodies directed against the N-terminal domain of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Employing molecular modeling methods, the insurance-based team demonstrates that enhancing antibodies show a higher attraction for Delta variants over the original strain. The authors proposed that based um, on the observation from their modeling, enhancing antibodies reinforce the binding, reinforce the binding of the spike uh, trimmer to the host cell membrane via the clamping of the NTD to lipid raft microdomains. Do these stabilizing mechanisms expedite the conformational change that stimulates the demasking of the receptor binding domain? The study authors propose that based on their modeling, in the case of the original one strain, the balance between neutralizing and facilitating antibodies. Um, so neutralizing is good. Facilitating, you know, is, is the Trojan horse in vaccinating individuals in favor of neutralization. So they felt there was no problem with ADE. But with Delta, the neutralizing antibodies demonstrate less affinity for the spike protein, whereas facilitating antibodies display a strikingly increased uh, affinity. That ain't good. That is not good. Um, so they're noticing this is a problem. And I'm not going to bore you with, with you know the science. It gets you know very detailed. But the reason why I'm focusing on this is that this offers a scientific hypothesis behind just data-wise what we're seeing. Because, you know, a lot of people point out, well, you know, Delta was around before the vaccine. Now, first of all, it's true it was around before they were approved, but actually it wasn't around before the trials, and the trials were done in India, among other places. So that's an interesting point. But let's say, no, Delta was naturally going to be there. They're giving a hypothesis that Delta was the perfect strain to be enhanced by ADE. Okay? Which makes sense because we, we've talked about this a number of times. 
Western Europe was the first non-India country to get a Delta wave before America South, May, June, rather than July, August. And it was really mild. And we were all like, oh, awesome. This is becoming endemic. This is how it mutates. It always mutates, gets a little bit more transmissible, less virulent. And then after July, August, starting with America South and then eventually in other countries and now very much in Europe, but even, even in some places like Asia, some places that never got hit before, this thing is like a beast. It's hitting younger people harder. It's hitting women harder than it did before. It's even a little bit harder to treat. You know, everything's a level down. Like beforehand, if you had high vitamin D levels or were taking ivermectin, you literally wouldn't even get the virus. Now this thing, it's like you're going to get it. But it you know, certainly helps to, to make sure you don't get it seriously in most cases. But man, this thing, you have to use more drugs earlier. Not with everyone, but often. It gets to the pulmonary phase more often, quicker. And it's like, what the heck? This is the same Delta that the UK experienced in May that was like a nothing burger. Again, what do we know? Non-sterilizing leaky vaccines create enhancement. When did it begin to leak? Around that time. So that's really the story here that they're covering up. It's the Delta was was prone to ADE from the vaccine. And that's what we're experiencing now. This other thing is a distraction. But there's something funny about what they're creating. Something very, very funny here. I mean, again, you know, they're out there. They just fact-checked me, the Facebook fact-checker. Like, this thing stops transmission. They're, they're still lying. I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you know CDC has a study out last week, a preprint published in MetaRx? CDC, okay? It's t- if you want to look it up, it's titled Transmission Potential of Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Persons Infected with SARS-CoV-2 Delta Variant in a Federal Prison July to August 2021. So it's certainly truer even now, three months later. They looked at prisoners. They took 978 specimens from prisoners, um, 978 specimens from 95 people. So they took a bunch from, from each person. 78 were fully vaccinated, 17 were not fully vaccinated. The cultures of both were had the same infectivity, same duration for five days. Those cultures remained infective. This is what they conclude. As this field continues to develop, clinicians and public health practitioners should consider vaccinated persons who become infected with SARS-CoV-2 to be no less infectious than unvaccinated persons. This is straight up from CDC. The whole thing is a lie. The whole mandate is a lie. But again, it's worse than that. It created this degree of enhancement. You know, this guy has a substack here. I don't know his name. M-E-T-A-T-R-O-N. Metatron points out what he did is he took 26 major European countries that have reported giving boosters 
against 19 that haven't. And he plotted the cases per million. And he, and he says this, not only do the boosting countries have 19% more cases at the start of the analysis, but towards the end of the summer, and the start of the analysis was at the end of the summer, but the margin actually gets bigger as we get deeper into autumn, currently standing at 21%. So in other words, the gap is even greater. The more they're, they're doing this, you, you, I mean, you can't miss this. You look at the UK data, and it was clear that for months already, it's been negative effective. At least on the transmission side and the you know, infectivity side. That makes no sense. Why would it be negative? It would just be like, okay, it doesn't work. Because if it doesn't work, it's a double-edged sword. There's no such thing as a middle ground. Once it doesn't work, then the antibodies you know, get latched onto. You're not, it's not neutralizing, it's facilitating. They're not neutralizing antibodies. When you're playing with a vaccine, you're playing with fire if you don't do it perfectly. That's the story here. And they're rapidly reaching a tipping point where they can no longer deny this. The boosters was a distraction to kind of hold people over a little bit. But I mean, as this winter turns into hell, there's no way they could cover that up. So that's why they had to go on to a new variant, which you wonder if they created because of that foreknowledge, and somehow going to create a booster for that, designed for that, so to hold people over, over even more. Now then there's the other half of this, which you got to wonder, is are they going to use this for Merck and Pfizer's th therapeutic. As of this recording today, the FDA is meeting today to approve Merck's drug, and there's no doubt they're going to approve it. Now, we talked about this yesterday a little bit. We're already at the point that the 50% reduction in hospitalization, whoops, it's only 30% reduction. But there's something funny. A guy, Leo Goldstein, at TrialSite points out that, wait a minute, if their second phase of their trial dropped from 50 to 30, that means that in the second phase, the efficacy was negative. And he finds a weird phenomenon, and this is true even in the first phase. The monopiravir seemed to be less effective when used within the first three days of the onset of symptoms rather than like the middle period, like three to six days. And that's weird because, you know... It, what we're seeing with everything else is the earlier the better. And what, what that seems to indicate is that the later you start treating it, so the more serious the virus is, so the more the effectiveness against the virus is going to outweigh what is evidently the damage that it does. You see what I'm saying? That shows that there's a degree of effectiveness, not as effective as ivermectin and some other stuff we're doing, but a degree of it, you know, it is antiviral. But it's antiviral in a bad way. It creates problems. So you take people that, that are early on where the virus is less of a problem, the side effects are going to outweigh that. So I haven't delved through the data yet, but there's some serious issues with Merck's trial. Someone who's good at this could take this apart. I send it to David Weissman, who's our kind of he's our trial guy this is his experience and he, you know to take this apart 
But one thing that was flagged for me, if you look at FDA's briefing document, so if you want to, you know, they have a briefing document for today's meeting. If you want to go to it, FDA, Center for Drug Evaluation Research, FDA briefing document, Antimicrobial Drugs Advisory Committee meeting, November 30th, Molnipiravir. And there's some really raunchy things there. In case you think I was just speculating that it's mutagenic, that it causes mutations, just like, just like the vaccine, and can make the spike protein worse, it's there in plain language in the FDA briefing document. However, um, this is a quote, there are potential safety concerns pertaining to MOV, that's molnipiravir, including embryo-fetal toxicity, bone and cartilage toxicity, okay, and and mutagenicity, as well as evidence that molnipiravir may increase the rate of changes in the viral spike protein, which in theory could enhance SARS-CoV-2 spike protein evolution. Huh? And then they say later on the document of particular interest in some participants, Molnipiravir treatment was associated with amino acid changes at sites, regions of spike that are likely under immune or other evolutionary pressure. That sounds a lot like what Vandenbosch talks about with, you know, you, you put, with the vaccines, when you put the spike under evolutionary pressure, it's going to mutate around it. It's going to become stronger around it. And particularly when it's a very weak half-assed pressure. Isn't it a coincidence that the therapeutics they're pushing do the same thing? This drug is garbage. If you really look through the study, there's no evidence it works much beyond maybe a little bit relatively early on. And, you know, it's mutagenic, toxic. Notice that everything they're doing makes the virus worse. I mean, you can't do this by accident. This is not some sort of accident here. This makes zero sense for this to happen. Molnipiravir looks like remdesivir 2.0 in plain sight. And by the way, folks, for those of you who have a loved one who was injured or killed by remdesivir, there is a website, grantfraud.com. It's one word, grant, as in like a a research grant, grantfraud.com. And uh, there is um, an email, fdakillerprotocol at formerfedsgroup.org, where you could email in your story. So it's a group they got together. They had a meeting last night. I mean, I didn't see it, but it's something to take a look at. And I noted yesterday, Oxford researchers, they looked at 10,000 vaxxed against 10,000 unvaxxed January to August at its peak effect, you know, effectiveness, and over 60, they found no efficacy. I mean, there's zero efficacy on transmission. But even earlier on, there was no evidence it helped people over 60, even for serious illness. And for nobody did it help with long COVID. So that's the latest kind of on where I think we are. I think they want to promote more boosters aimed at certain variants that they seem to have a good, um, 
a good grasp on for some reason, even though they're not the most concerning ones. And also, they want to promote their therapeutics. I mean, you look at Scott Gottlieb, and he's really talking about that a lot. A lot of them have moved on to that. Very, very concerning. And all the while, blocking what actually works. What actually works. You know, um, there's a study out on a nasal spray with, um, and, and again, I mean, this is like cronyism. You don't need this. It's called sanitized nitric oxide nasal spray. Nitric oxide. They found in a lab it kills 99.9% of SARS-CoV-2. It was developed in Vancouver by a Canada-based Sanitized Research and Development Corp based on results from lab tests at Utah State University's Antiviral Research Institute. And the nasal sprays are doing amazing. Now, again, you don't need some expensive thing. Um, I ran this by Dr. Henson, who's an ENT uh, head and neck guy. And he said, you know, either the betadine or hydrogen peroxide is, um, is just as good as nitric oxide. But the point is that there's several things that could kill uh, the the virus and 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 I will I will tell you it's important to again make these concoctions. I'm not giving you my personal medical advice. I'm telling you what I'm doing and what I'm hearing from others. Do your own research. Uh, but but this is really, you know, because the concern is. I mean, this is why we're constantly looking for new treatments. Um, you know, the more virulent you make this virus with the vaccine, the vaccine is a killer. Um, the harder it's going to become to treat. So. One thing that's always going to work is the virus always starts out in your nasal pharynx. And if you kill it, you know, it's a lot harder when you're dealing with the bloodstream and the cells and this and that. But, but to kill it in the nasal pharynx, you know, is, is so easy to do. That is always going to be the key, is lowering the viral load. That is the most important thing Every single frontline doctor I speak to is like, that is holding up. So again, like, you know, I'm just telling you what I do. I don't necessarily always remember, but you know, you think you're around people a lot, you know, that day before you go to sleep, just preemptively every night, you know, shoot it up your nose, the betadine nasal spray, gargle, you know, mouthwash, and also, you know, the betadine concoction. Again, go to the FLCC's website their eye mask protocol to, you know, see the directions on how to do all that. Um, or, you know, what Dr. Henson recommends, um, and especially for people that know they just had it or like you have a spouse or someone in your home that got it and you know you're almost 90% sure you're going to be incubating that right now in your nasal pharynx, get a nebulizer. Get a nebulizer. They still are available at Amazon. There's a whole scandal. Walgreens and the big stores, they've taken them off the shelf. Some are even requiring a prescription for a nebulizer. Not just the prescription steroid that you put in, you know, put in it like budesonide, but they're requiring a prescription. It, it, is, it is genocide. Everyone should have been, for all the money we handed out for free, everyone should have been given a nebulizer. So a nebulizer is important for two things. One is if you do get into trouble and you know you didn't treat it early or you know for whatever reason you got a really bad viral load and and the protocol didn't work um nothing's guaranteed in life so your blood oxygen level starts dropping 
if you're like, crap, it's it's dropping into the mid-90s, maybe lower 90s, that is really like all hands on deck. And the most important thing is, is um, you know, is is uh to treat the pulmonary inflammation with a nebulizer because the nebulizer does a good job of getting the stuff to where it needs to go. So you want the budesonide and that you need a prescription for. Um, and it's criminal that PCPs wouldn't prescribe that because that is standard of care for any respiratory distress. I mean, it might not be budesonide. It might be other similar things, but budesonide is what the doctors have coalesced around for COVID. Um, I know there's a few other things that people might use and, uh, that, that, that is really the best thing. I mean, obviously you get a guy like, you know, totally crashing in the eighties and seventies. Yeah. I mean, then you have a bigger thing on hand, but this is really, really important, um, but then the other thing is most instrumental in making sure you don't even get there is to use a nebulizer not as a, you know, to get a steroid on. It's, you know, preemptively or maybe you just got it or incubating it. It kills the freaking thing in your nasal pharynx. Um, what Henson always tells me is you put a nebulizer on, you put hydrogen peroxide in there, food-grade hydrogen peroxide, and... Um, you know, it will even go to your eyes because the eyes are also an entry point. So it kills it right there. I mean, that's that's the single bit best thing you could probably do, um, more than than anything else. Um, so so there's that. It is just criminal that that education is not getting out to people. Um, you know, th- there, there's other interesting things. Spironolactone. Okay, this is one of the two androgen blockers that are on the FLCC's protocol. You know, this came from Flavio, the endocrinologist in Brazil, probably the greatest COVID doctor in the world. We had him on the show. Um, so he advised the FLCC on this protocol. There's a study from Sir, Ed, Sir Christopher Edwards published in the Frontiers of Endocrinology. Um, this is a guy who works for Imperial College London, of all places. They did a study um, giving people Spironolactone. It's a very safe, common medication for um, acne, you know, but it, but it has to do with that extra androgen, the hormone, the same hormone that, you know, creates um, acne and, and hair loss uh, in men, at least. Also, uh, greases the ACE2 binding for the virus. It was, it was an accidental discovery, but it is very key. It really has a lot to do with why, generally speaking, men are affected more than women. They had a randomized controlled trial. Okay, this Imperial College of London guy. Okay, pretty big guy. Now, he did it with dexamethasone. Now, you know I'm not a fan of that because methylpred or prednisone work better, but this was at least outpatient, right? Meaning if you're going to give dexamethasone, you need to give it earlier on. And also, rather than... Six MIGs, I think it was like, it was more than double that, the dose, because the doses they, they give in the hospital is too too low. But you could tell, I'm not going to get into it, but if you read the study, it wasn't the DEX that was doing it. It was the spironolactone. 16, 19.6%, okay, of the hospitalized patients in the, in the placebo group, 19.6% progress the ICU only 5.4 okay, I mean that, that that's a that's almost a fourfold 
fourfold benefit from just spironolactone. So again, I mean, there's a lot of different things out there. What's criminal is as they make this virus worse, we have to constantly try to hone in on what is the best concoction at what time. There's a lot of different weapons out there, and this is what is so criminal about the NIH. I think we all agree that if if we had a modicum of money put behind this, we'd be able to really work out which ones are the best, which combo, what dosage is this is you know how far you could go up that's still safe. This is really the key, and if we had a modicum of support behind it, we would have protocols that knock out of the box even what we have now. And the concern is that we increasingly need this. I was speaking to Dr. Lynn Finn for a long time yesterday. I was just talking to her about what works, what doesn't. And you know, she was very much like like um, doxycycline, she felt, is not working on this iteration. Um, and she, she mentioned two interesting things. And again, I'm just saying this academically, um, just purely academically. Uh, don't take this as medical advice because these are very kind of new research stuff. But n- natokinase, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, N as in Natalie, N-A-T-T-O-K-I-N-A-S-E. Um, it's a supplement. It's a You could buy it, I think, even on Amazon. Um, what's interesting about it is it's anticoagulant, antithrombotic, anti-everything. Like, anti-every ba- ba- bad blood disorder you can get. And what, again, I'm just spe- telling this over to you from a private conversation from Dr. Finn what she found with her patients, because she's really like at the front lines, really experimenting with you know people coming with their blood oxygen level dropping, and she found people you know their blood oxygen level dropped to ninety. This was the thing that bumped it up to ninety eight, like within hours. Um, so basically, the idea is this. So the the problem with the blood oxygen level dropping is really twofold. So there's the direct cytokine storm, the the cytokines just inflaming your lungs. So that's obvious why you have less oxygen exchange going on. Uh, The blood oxygen level drops. But then there's the other thing that people are forgetting, that the more we study this virus, and we're certainly seeing this with the vaccines, the, the thrombotic effects are not just like, yeah, a certain percentage, a massive percentage of people are getting it. Anyone who's having their blood oxygen level dropping, you already have to assume you're having some blood problems. Um, that's how common it is. This really does attack the blood. This, I mean, again, the virus is really nasty, and that's why the vaccine is nasty. The spike protein is freaking nasty. So as you can imagine, you know, the more your blood thickens and congeals and clots you know it's it's going to you know lower your blood oxygen level so it's coming from that as well and certainly the um blood vessels in the lungs itself really are the ones very much affected so you know she was saying that this natokinase really addresses that point um which is you know you know because again there's the anti-inflammatories but if you have a good anti-thrombotic um, it's not just, oh, it stops blood clots, but what, what what do you do about the pulmonary inflammation? She's saying this thing has really worked for her. Again, it's not a, a, a clinical trial. This is just what she talked about. Another interesting thing she mentioned for people in trouble was metformin. Now, this is a prescription drug. 
M-E-T-F-O-R-M-I-N. Um, it's a diabetes drug. I, I don't know exactly the mechanism. I think she explained it to me, probably went over my head. But the point is, there's so much out there established supplements, established prescription drugs that have established safety profiles. Even if we wouldn't discover any new ones, which I'm sure we can if we researched it, just from the ones that already seem to have promise. It's a matter of what we really need to do is get it down to a science, the right dosage, the right cocktail for the right time so people don't have to take a million different things. So it's user-friendly. I mean, and that's kind of the struggle. But it's utterly criminal what is going on. Utterly criminal. So anyway, we covered the epidemiological stuff, right? The effectiveness of the shots and where things are headed, you know, which variants matter, why they're concerned about a fake variant or one that they might have created. Uh, we covered what does work, some of the latest on the early treatment, what some of the latest stuff we're learning about the virulence of this virus that, unfortunately, yeah, you do need to take seriously, not in the way they want to do it, which only makes it worse and destroys your life and liberty, um, but to actually uh, treat it. But then there's the third part. Again, you know, what are these shots doing to people? And I think a good transition to this, we only have a few minutes really to go over this. There's a lot more on vaccine injury to go over over the next number of days, and then I do want to get to, you know, there's some other stories this week. Obviously, there's a lot on crime and Waukesha and, you know, a lot of other policies I want to get to, but uh, political stuff as well. But, folks, this is a good transition into this because we're, we're talking about how, look, you know, we see that the virus itself, you can't deny, is a very thrombotic. And you can't deny that. And you can't deny the safety signals with the shot are particularly potent when it comes to blood-slash-heart ailments, okay? So there was this study that was put out in the Circular Journal, that's the American Heart Association's Journal of Record, by his Dr. Grady, that he found that the risk for heart attack goes up more than twofold based on some of these markers from people who got the shots. And he really found, you know, particular markers. He lists a few of them and it, it made uh, made a lot of waves. So naturally, of course, you know, they put some sort of retraction on it. We knew, we knew that was going to happen. The American Heart Association wasn't going to keep that in there, which tells you all the more so how it's true. But what's very interesting is on GBN News, uh, this British cardiologist, you might have heard it, but for those of you who didn't, I think it's worth playing a few minutes. On GBN News, Dr. Asim Malhotra, M-A-L-H-O-T-R-A, he issued this dire warning about what they're seeing in Great Britain with these cardiac signals. Uh, take a listen. Share with you today on GB News is a few days ago after this was published. Um, somebody from a very prestigious British institution, cardiology department, researcher, a whistleblower, if you like, contacted me to say that the researchers in this department had found something similar within the coronary arteries linked to the vaccine, inflammation from imaging studies around the coronary arteries. And um, they had a meeting, and these researchers at the moment have decided they're not going to publish their findings because they are concerned about losing research money from the drug industry. Now, this person was very upset about it, um, and I wanted to obviously share this on GB News today. What I would say is that we then, knowing this information, which is very concerning, Stephen Gundry's paper in circulation, 
and also anecdotal evidence. I mean, I have a lot of interaction with the cardiology community across the UK. And anecdotally, I've been getting told by colleagues that they are seeing younger and younger people coming in with heart attacks. Now, what does this mean in terms of the data? We have to put the jigsaw for the pieces together. We know since July, there's been almost 10,000 excess non-COVID deaths. Um, and most of those, or significant proportion of those, are being driven by circulatory disease, in other words, heart attack and stroke. There's been a 30% increase in people having, uh, dying at home. And often these are because of cardiac arrests. Of course, this is also something close to my heart because my own father is one of those statistics. He had a cardiac arrest at home July the 26th. So when these figure, these data, since this data has been collected. So where do we go from here? I think the signal is quite strong. I personally um, think that this needs investigating. So I think the Joint Committee of Vaccines and Immunization should absolutely investigate this. Um, I think that the researchers... I really hope that they take a look in the mirror and realize the ones from where this whistleblowers come from, um, they realize that they should publish this stuff because their duty primarily is to patients, not the interest of the drug, drug industry. And I think the third thing, and this has been a discussion that's been ongoing, I think now it's high time that policymakers around the world put an end to the mandates. Because I think if this signal is strong and if it's correct, then um, history will not be on their side and the public will not forgive them for it, Alex. So um, this is very concerning. It needs investigating. So you heard that from Dr. Malhotra, first of all, that there's so much more of this going on, but anyone who's in a position to monitor it, quantify it, they're too scared to put it out because it's going to be a research institution and they're not going to get research grants. They'll be thrown in, in the dungeon. You know, so there's that. But then, I mean, you look at the excess deaths, you look at the sudden home deaths, there's too much of this going on. It doesn't make sense. And you tether this with, um, there's this great substack. This guy, Igor Chudov, um, is a substack. Uh, again, it's igorchudov.substack. Media's false fear-mongering about Michigan. And, and he talks about the Michigan um, COVID hospitalization numbers. And he dug it straight out from, he, he picked, this is not statewide, but it's a big hospital system, Spectrum Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So you looked at their data and he found something really interesting. You're able to divide up COVID beds by non-COVID beds. And he looked at November 13th and he compared it to pretty much the same date from last year. Okay, so you know this was this is already 2 weeks old, but at that, you know, so it's gotten worse since then from the COVID end, but look at this from 2 weeks ago. And he found that if you look at COVID patients Okay, it was 176 last year. It's 207 this year. Okay, 207. This is hospital beds admission. 207. That's a 17% increase over that time last year. It's pretty, you know, pretty substantial. Non-COVID patients went up almost 19%, a little bit more. Why? That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Why would non-COVID patients go up? But here's the real kicker. He looked at, so that's admissions. He looked at ER visits, ER data. COVID numbers were actually down 9%. So that's interesting. But non-COVID ER visits were up 34%. 34%. 
And the point he was trying to make is that it doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, if you want to say, well, Daniel, that, that that's like the bottleneck of, of a built-up lack of care during the lockdowns. But you wouldn't see that in the ER visits. Right? That would just be like, you know, gradually there's more cancers that were undiagnosed or whatever. You wouldn't see like the sudden people coming in. That, that has the booster shots written all over it. The people coming in with the blood disorders, the thrombotic disorders. So that's the thing. There's something really funny. There's something really funny going on there. And there's a lot of safety signals that we're missing. This is from Global Research in Canada. Anthony Murdoch, Canadian doctors say government data point to spike in COVID cases after jab suppressed immune system. Dr. Christy Reich, who works as a family doctor, said she uh, shared shared uh, graphs compiled from Alberta Health Services information with a group of doctors who are concerned with jab mandates and safety. Together, they determined the graphs were showing an initial spike in COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths within the first two to three weeks of receiving the first dose of co-vaccination. After the second dose, you see a small initial increase in cases, but then an elevation in cases again in two to six months. So right away, and then two to six months later. And she has, she has all the data, straight up from Alberta data. You could track it. So these are, again, there's, there's the vaccine injuries, but this is COVID cases. Specialists added that they're seeing other diseases and illnesses that have been in remission come back. It's as if the vaccine is causing immunosuppression. The body is expending so many resources fighting the spike protein that the body can't hold off these other infections or diseases that were in remission. According to Reich, it's hard to say why we are seeing this from the graph, adding that it could be that the vaccine is decreasing people's immune function, making them more predisposed to catching illnesses or fighting off conditions currently in remission. So, again, you have to piece it together like a puzzle, but something isn't right. Something is not right. Now, today was a very kind of like data science show. We do need to get back to legally, politically. You know, I know we have all these court victories, but like I've told you, all they do is say that the government can't force the hospitals or businesses to do it, assuming that the you know, CMS injunction holds up. But they're going to do it on their own because the carrot and stick that the federal government has already imbued in society. If you don't have states, this is what the Governor DeSantis said very clearly that the other Republicans aren't doing. It's not enough anymore to just go to court. And it's giving them a false sense of security, and it's taken some of the air out of the momentum behind these legislative sessions. we got to prepare. We only have a little bit more than a month left to prepare for these legislative sessions. These are going to be the most important times to have our voices heard, to take names, to work on primaries, to work on legislation. So I'm going to come out with a to-do list in the, co- in the coming days. But again, take all this information to everyone you know, 
This could save a life. It's vitally important. We're fighting for our lives from the bioweapon they created as the virus. We're fighting for our lives from the bioweapon they created as the solution. We're fighting for our lives and liberty from the fascism that they've imposed upon us. These are the times that try men's souls. Again, nothing's more wonder wonderful than the art of being free, but we have to know how to use that freedom. That is our, our uh, calling for the coming days and weeks. Send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. Subscribe on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating if you can. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. <laughs>